on this episode of China Unscripted. Chinese Communist Party's aggressive behavior has caused an even bigger rift with the West. Have the Chinese Communist Party's plans to become a global superpower been derailed? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. So today we're going to talk about what seems to be a growing rift between China and the West. Now, this has actually been building for many years. Uh, we saw this really kind of change under the Trump administration, but happily, it seems, uh, despite a change in U.S. administration, it still is continuing. The rift is what you're happy about. The rift, yes. Okay. I don't think it's actually determined on the the Trump administration or the Biden administration, though, as much as it is the Chinese Communist Party. It being uh, consistently terrible. Yes, they have been very consistently terrible. Mm -hmm. But also, they're the ones pushing this rift in a lot of ways. Oh, how do you mean, Shelley? Well, I think that we just assume that, you know, they've done this great job of like making everybody in the world a little bit afraid of making China angry. Hurting the feelings of the Chinese people. Just Google angering China, uh -huh. and you'll just see like, like news article after news article that's like, so-and-so happens, comma, angering China. Hmm. Um, right. And it's funny because like you don't see even in Chinese media, you don't see like so and so angering the U.S. Or the U.S. people. Yeah. Hurting the feelings of the American people. I think well, that's because they don't care about the feelings of the American people. That's true. Also, our default state is just kind of angry. So it, are we? Is that what Americans are known for? Yes. <laughs> I was going to go with like arrogant, arrogant imperialists. Arrogant imperialists. No, that's just projecting. It's it's uh, the uh, arrogance is to cover our anger. I thought arrogance was to cover our, our insecurities. That, uh, which is why we try to speak to China from a position of power. But we don't have we don't have the position. We don't have like the status and the qualifications to speak to them. This, from a position this is all of power. a reference to the U.S. China meeting that uh, just happened, where uh, Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, was talking about how the U uh, the U.S. will talk to China from a position of power. And uh, Chinese state-run media kind of had a field day with that. Well, it wasn't just Chinese state-run media. Like at the at the meeting, Yang Jiechi said to Blinken's face, "Like you don't have the qualifications to speak to us, you know, like from like that. You know, you don't have the qualifications. You are not qualified, essentially. Yeah." Mm -hmm. And then brought up like, you know, America is racist. You know, all the all this kind of stuff about how America is bad, therefore they. America can't criticize China's human rights. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese Communist Party has been so aggressive lately. That's really what is helping fuel uh, the rift between the West and China. Yeah. You know, at that meeting, it, a lot of the takeaways from that were that the, you know, China dissed the U.S. essentially. You know what? What I think the U.S. side should have done is just, you know, listen to all this criticism of the U.S. and criticism of all of America's problems with, you know, racism and whatnot. And then Anthony Blinken should have said, Thank you. We appreciate, you know, that you feel comfortable coming onto our soil and criticizing all all the problems that we have because only by airing these problems in public can we properly address them. And then just kind of leave it that, you know, as a kind of subtle contrast to what happens when you try to point out what happens in inside China. I thought you were going to say he should have just said I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, that would also have worked. It's a little less subtle, but it it's clearer. Yeah, no, but and I think I think that this administration works on a little bit more subtlety. I mean, maybe that was too subtle, but I, you know, it's it's a th there is there is a kind of difference in terms of how the this administration versus the previous one approached it, but both are trying to be tougher on China than you know the administrations and you know than the. Bush or Obama administrations. I don't know, Shelley. What do you what do you think about Matt's idea? Well, I mean, I think Blinken kind of did that, where he was saying something about the strength of America is that we can talk about these kinds of things, and I think that was supposed to be a subtle dig. But I don't think that I don't think that's going to really hurt the CCP, like that kind of like subtle dig, because they kind of don't really mm -hmm. care. They just want. I mean, this was just like a propaganda exercise for them to be able to come to uh, the U.S. And like, there were other things that were also subtle digs at 
the CCP, like the whole idea that like they're just meeting in Anchorage because Blinken had to stop there anyway for refueling after being in Asia, where he pointedly mm-hmm. met with Japan and South Korea and did not meet with China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's a lot of different those kinds of things. But I think that like just kind of saying, well, like we stand for, you know, America is not that kind of country. It's not really going to have much of an effect on them. I mean, so what could he or should he have done that would have had an effect? Like, should he have just gone full like, yeah, well, China you know, kills Uyghurs for their organs, right? I mean, like he could have done that. And well, that- I would be very impressed if a yeah. U.S. administration actually said something like that. Like I cannot imagine, because th- this goes back to the genocide thing. If you admit that you're dealing with a regime that does this kind of stuff, how can you treat them like a normal country? So if if Blinken were to literally say that to the Chinese, uh, like a foreign minister's face, like that's- that would be huge. I don't. <laughs> I can just. I can just see the headline. America points out twenty years of the CCP's forced organ harvesting of dissidents in state-run hospitals, comma angering China. <laughs> well, I mean, there's other things they could have done. Maybe like cut the meetings short, or like there are other things that there there could have been like diplomatic ways to handle the idea that you know that was not the right way to act or whatever. But I think also. You know, them acting that way was another thing that kind of made it clear that, like, they're trying to be bullies. Well, yeah, we have seen um, sort of this U.S. administration carrying on a pretty uh, fairly tough on the Chinese Communist Party approach. Like, you know, Antony Blinken, uh, I guess it was after the meeting. I'm trying to remember the timeline. But he 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 met with NATO officials and like specifically said, we need to come together to counter the Chinese Communist Party. Right. And ahead of the meeting, it was meeting with South Korea and Japan. And both mm-hmm. of those statements kind of either alluded to or directly mentioned China as like a security risk to the Asia Pacific or the Indo Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad they're carrying on that important term, factoring India into the region. Yeah. And I think also what's interesting is that we're seeing that increasingly, and I know we've talked about this many times before, but standing up to the Communist Party is not a left or right issue. For example, you know, we have a left-leaning administration in this country. South Korea is a much more left-leaning administration. Japan is a left-leaning administration now. Uh, Many of our allies in NATO are like that uh, and coming together to stand up to the CCP. Whereas I think what happened during the Trump administration is some people were like, oh, well, this is a a Republican thing or this is a right-leaning thing, but it's really not. Uh, And I think it's good that there's this sort of widespread agreement across the political spectrum that this is a really important issue. And I think uh, domestically, there is a certain pressure on the Biden administration because there is this bipartisan idea that, you know, uh, that there's problems with our relationship with China. Mm-hmm. And in a way, the Biden administration does have something to prove, uh, considering uh, Biden himself, his past failures uh, in dealing with China, both as a senator and as vice president. Uh, the Hunter Biden scandal with his deals with China is also sort of a cloud over the administration, as well as uh, some of the other uh, high-ranking members of the Biden administration who were former Obama administration officials, people like Kirk Campbell, who was responsible for the Scarborough Shoal incident back during the 2012. Well, I mean, he wasn't responsible for the incident, but he was supposed to be negotiating with the He was the responsible side. for yeah. the diplomatic fallout that hurt our relations with all Southeast Asian nations for the next decade. Yeah, the Chinese uh, Coast Guard basically seized control of the Scarborough Shoal and uh, looked like the Philippines and China were going to come to blow over this. And so Kirk Campbell negotiated an agreement where both sides would withdraw. The Philippines withdrew and China did not. And then Kirk Campbell was like, well, we're not going to go to war over like a couple rocks. Not sure he said that because, like, I looked that up again. Really? And it seems to be attributed to an unnamed U.S. military official. Mm. Hmm. So, like, it's not clear. Because, okay. like, I had also read previously that Kirk Campbell said that. Now I'm not sure anymore. So. Okay. So I, I always have this this level of distrust whenever media have unnamed sources. Because, like, I understand that sources want to protect themselves but also, if a source isn't willing to go on camera, they can just say anything and it might be untrue. And there's no way for anyone else to verify that. So in general, like I think it's like we should take it with a much bigger grain of salt than most people do. But the point is, uh, the Biden administration is kind of operating under this cloud of suspicion about what their China policy will be. 
So it is good to see Antony Blinken coming out and saying these things about China. The State Department uh, just released its uh, 2020 report on human rights in China. And they were very critical of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. They called what's happening to the Uyghurs genocide. Uh, and crimes against humanity. And crimes against humanity. It also talked about organ harvesting of Uyghurs and Falun Gong practitioners. Although I noticed they said that it's that several groups and organizations still accuse, yeah. You know, it said there was like no direct evidence of organ harvesting, but that was like pulled from the 2019 uh, State Department report under the Trump administration. But I, but I think even a lot of the groups that are saying organ harvesting is definitely happening, they're also saying, well, we don't have direct evidence. We have all sorts of circumstantial evidence and other mm -hmm. things. And when put together, you know, they paint this very clear picture. But yeah, like I can understand that. But the fact that they even got it in there, I think is saying something. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, there's a- Though it was also in the State Department report from the previous year, also under the Trump administration. So this is something where we see a continuing uh, threat between the administrations on how to deal with China. Although I have to say, they've only been in office for two months, so they've probably been working on this report for longer. You know, like parts Good of point. this report could have been just carryover from the Trump administration yeah. as well, just because. So we might yeah. have a better idea of next year, how they say things. Yeah. And I think that there are definitely good signs like the sanctions that the the US and the EU did against Chinese officials yes. for the, the Uyghur genocide. That was very interesting because, you know, Biden's whole thing was like, you know, China is a threat, but Trump did it wrong. We need to work with our allies. And so there's kind of like, okay, well, let's see what he actually does. Is he able to do that? And so it was great to see that, uh, you know, I don't know what the impetus was. Like, I, I don't think leaders of Europe would say, ah, Biden asked us to do this and we did it. But uh, at least U.S. allies coming together to do these sanctions on Yeah, I China. mean, I think part of that is the Europe was under a lot of pressure because they were one of, they were not, like a lot of other countries had passed Magnitsky asks. Blech. Yeah, Magnitsky, I know. Magnitsky, it's always hard to pronounce. Magnitsky, there's, it's, there's not the other N. Magnitsky, yeah. so, uh, you know, the EU can, had kind of been slow on passing this, mm -hmm. the idea that you could sanction individual foreign officials for, you know, crimes that they commit. Mm -hmm. uh, so the EU is a little slow, so they were under that pressure. The EU is under pressure because of the whole... Uh, that tr the Kai the the investment deal with China. Oh, the one that happened yeah. earlier this year. And so this was the EU Parliament who was that was not kind of not totally happy with that deal that was mm -hmm. kind of made outside the Parliament but has to be uh, approved by the Parliament. So now the Parliament was the one that sanctioned mm -hmm. these officials. So I think there's like other inter EU politics ticks and things happening so yeah but wasn't this the first uh sanctions of any kind europe has put on china since the 1989 Tiananmen square massacre yeah and i think that's partially because they were able to sanction individual officials instead of the country itself yeah. which would anger china yes that would i think this also Definitely angered china anger china as well I mean, I think also things like the the Taiwan Coast Guard deal, when we had Grant yeah. Newsham on, this was one of the things he was talking about, right? Like that the U.S. should be helping Taiwan more in terms of helping them train, helping like our military should be working together. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Coast Guard's not quite seen the same as like the Marine Corps, but it's It's, it's a significant, step. Yeah. definitely. But I think that one thing that the Trump administration was very clear on that I think that the Biden administration does not share is the 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 kind of idea that this is an ideological great power competition, that this mm. is actually about, you know, American values versus the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, they they seem to want to kind of shy away from sort of the... Cold War rhetoric, for lack of a better word. And I think it's that also there's this idea that, uh, you know, talking about American values would be imposing our imperialism or our hegemony on mm -hmm. the rest of the world, right? Like, this is kind of more of a, like, this is kind of how Democrats versus Republicans more see. Yeah, there's definitely, um, when you're talking a little more on the left, the idea that you don't want to impose, the values are a little more relative, even though I don't think anyone would say like, you know, 
freedom and democracy are like subjective values and like China's authoritarianism is is just as equal or just as good as freedom. No, I don't think that's what they would say, but I think there is like Biden kind of alluded to this in his whole town hall thing that kind of got twisted into him saying that genocide was like a cultural value or oh, something, yeah. but what he was really saying was still that uh, you know, Xi Jinping understands that like different countries have different cultural values. So there is that idea that, you know, China's cultural values or, you know, China's cultural values are just different. They're just more authoritarian. Would mm -hmm. It's really just, you know, that's not actually China's cultural values. It's the Chinese Communist Party. And what's interesting about this um, growing rift between the West and China is, um, we're sort of seeing how the Chinese Communist Party is preparing to fight back against the West in a broader, uh, more ideological or, well, I guess what I'm getting at is um, the CCP is doing all kinds of things to undermine the West. Uh, for example, uh, China recently uh, signed a deal, 25-year deal with Iran. So the Iran-China deal is a pretty good uh, example of how the CCP is trying to undermine the West. So in this deal, uh, it's, it's basically typical Belt and Road stuff. China gets to invest in like oil and gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it also promises to help uh, Iran develop nuclear power, civilian nuclear power, don't worry. And um, obviously, the, uh, Iran is a concern for the stability of the Middle East and the stability of the world. And so... The West, particularly the U.S., uses its economic leverage to impose sanctions on Iran. Um, but authoritarian regimes like China and Iran, uh, Russia, they're able to actually work together to sort of break the, the the hold the West has on these countries that would be trying to push authoritarian regimes to actually, uh, well, as Biden would say, play along with the rules-based international order. Yeah, I think the Iran thing is interesting because it definitely is undermining the whole U.S. attempt to, like, the U.S. and Iran are kind of in the standoff, right, where they're kind of both trying, they're playing chicken about which side is going to break first on the yeah. nuclear deal versus sanctions. Like, Iran's like, you have to take off sanctions before we'll talk to you again. And, because their economy is crippled right now. Yeah, and it has been for many years, mm -hmm. uh, ever since, you know, Trump started reimposing sanctions. It's mm -hmm. been getting worse. So... They're, but like they're kind of like, well, you have to take this off. And then the U.S. is like, no, you have to come talk before we'll do that. Make actual steps to uh, denuclearize. Yeah. So now if China comes in, and it's not going to be a fast process, I think, because still it's not like Iran can suddenly replace uh, everything with China. But they're they're going to they're looking for other pathways to evade mm -hmm. uh, U.S. sanctions. China buying Iranian oil will pump lots of money. Well, not maybe not lots of money, but it'll it'll pump a significant amount of money back into a crippled economy, which gives them room to fight back against U.S. sanctions. And right after this deal was mentioned, uh, Biden came back to the Iranian regime with a new proposal that did include uh, less sanctions. So I think the Biden administration realizes that like their hand is being kind of undermined by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I think the Chinese Communist Party has other motives, too. It's not just about that, because uh, they've been increasingly coming into the Middle East, mm -hmm. which they had kind of previously avoided before. Uh, but now, yeah, increasing deals in the middle with many Middle Eastern countries, not just Iran, uh, also Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Israel too. So, you know, they're kind of playing both sides of that split. But yeah, a lot of interest suddenly in the Middle East. Well, in particular, this is this is also part of a strategy to undermine the U.S. dollar. As long as uh, the U.S. dollar is the essentially the global currency, most deals are made in U.S. dollars. Even China's Belt and Road Project, most of the deals involve U.S. dollars. Uh, this always puts the Chinese Communist Party at a disadvantage when trying to struggle against the United States. Uh, as long as the U.S. dollar has its kind of power, U.S. sanctions have a lot of power, whether it's the sanctions on Iran or all of the targeted sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials that have happened under the Trump administration and the Biden administration. If the Chinese Communist Party is able to undermine the U.S. dollar and replace it with uh, the U.N., 
for instance, or a digital currency that they're working on, uh, then suddenly the United States loses its greatest uh, power. Right. I mean, it's it's really a matter of the entire global financial system using the U.S. dollars as the settlement currency uh, between other countries' uh, you know exchanges. But there's there's actually two factors that are that are uh, weakening the U.S. dollar in this regard, because one is is China strengthening the uh, renminbi and you know the digital currency, which is which is part of that, and the other is uh, you know in response to the coronavirus, the U.S. started uh, a sort of quantitative easing that weakens the value of the U.S. dollar, and uh, we've also seen during the last couple months big spending bills that are paid for, uh, you know, with deficits. And this is this has happened over the last year. It's not just the current administration. But overall, what's happening is this weakens the U.S. dollar, right? And so other countries see this as like, oh, well, the U.S. dollar is getting weaker. Maybe if the U.S. keeps, uh, you know, quantitative easing, let's, for, for simplicity, let's call it printing money uh, to pay for spending, then, you know, we can't trust the US dollar as much and maybe we should look to something else. But right now, the renminbi is not more reliable than the US dollar. The US dollar still has that dominant position. Uh, the danger is if the the current sort of COVID era spending uh, without uh, actually you know raising taxes to pay for it or whatever, uh, if this current spending continues through quantitative easing, then the dollar will get weaker and weaker and weaker, and other countries will just gradually look more and more to other countries. And then this will be, the, the Chinese Communist Party sees this as an opportunity to uh, to use the RMB as, the, as a dominant currency. And right now, for a long time, it's been pegged to the US dollar, right? So it was uh, 20 years ago, it was pegged at 8.26 and it was fixed. And then they un pegged it, but it it kind of floats between you know, six and seven or something like that. It's, it's pegged to a basket of currencies. A basket of currencies, but it's the US dollar. Like, let's be real. And also they they don't let it, they let it float, but they don't actually let it float too much because if it gets beyond a certain amount in a trading day, they just stop the trading. And so it's, it's, it's still essentially pegged to the dollar, right? But China can just change that at any point once it feels it's like confident enough that it doesn't have to be you know quasi pegged to the dollar then they'll just kind of go you know renminbi independence and when it's and it's they're not they can't do it yet but you know if and when they do then other countries will be like oh well maybe this will be the benchmark currency uh especially if there's more pressure to use a digital currency which i don't think we should get into here but like uh if, if China can be a currency leader, then the U.S.'s sanctions don't work because our sanctions work because, you know, the banking system, Iran needs the global banking system to do trade, which they can't do if they're sanctioned. You know, Hong Kong officials like, you know, Carrie Lam gets her entire $600,000 annual salary in actual cash because she is locked out of the banking system because, you know, HSBC, which is a British bank, can't do business with her because HSBC relies on access to US dollars, which can be, you know, HSBC can be punished through these sanctions if they don't follow them. And so this is an enormous power. Controlling the money is an enormous power. Uh, and it's it really behooves us to appreciate this, to hold on to this and never let it go uh, if we want to maintain America's power to rein in authoritarian regimes. I mean, that also has a lot to do, the value of the U.S. currency also has a lot to do with the fact that that's how we can sell treasuries. That's how, you know, uh, we can finance through debt uh, all of the spending, right? But I think I think the Chinese Communist Party is still many years away from using the RMB as a reserve currency, like a world reserve currency, mostly because they cannot let go of the ability to control their monetary policy through like through controlling the currency like domestically they need that kind of control so they can control inflation uh, otherwise they're going to have like a big problem in, with their domestic economy so they always have that kind of like like safety break or whatever you want to call it right with the with their currency controls so 
other countries aren't going to want to use the RMB as a reserve currency if the Chinese government can just change the value of that for based on what's better for them domestically. So, I mean, but the one thing that the Chinese Communist Party is doing to try to accelerate this timeline of, of the world being dependent on the RMB uh, is they're trying to force other co- uh, countries, like if the, the the companies that want to do business in China, they're trying to force them to use the RMB. Now, this hadn't really worked in the past uh, because they hadn't really opened their financial markets. So they would be like, oh, well, you know, in Hong Kong, we were opening trading between the dollar and the RMB, but most people were still just switching RMB for US dollars. So now they're trying this thing where if you want to come into the Chinese bond market, we have some bonds that you can buy in USD, but most of the bonds you're going to have to buy in RMB. And like, you know, BlackRock, you're welcome to come, you know, set up mutual funds in China. But it's all going to be in RMB now. Yeah, well, that's the that's the thing that BlackRock isn't telling investors, uh, you know, well, they're, they're telling it to them, right? But they're not like promoting that as the thing. Because once they're in the RMB, they're locked in. They can't take that money out of China. So... You can invest. You can convert your dollars to RMB, and you can invest those RMB in China. But if you ever want your money back, you can only convert them to RMB and not get them back in U.S. dollars. Yes, that's currently the kind of system that they're trying to set up. So that sounds to me like digging a hole and putting your U.S. dollars in the hole and then covering it back up. Well, I think that like a lot of companies have this issue with like trying to move out of China. That it's hard for them to move their assets out of China, actually. It's almost like the Chinese Communist Party set a trap for Western companies and they fell for it. I think they're currently falling for it. Like they're currently like running towards the trap and falling inside it. <laughs> Ooh, shiny. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, so, so, so the solution is invest in Dogecoin. <laughs> Dogecoin? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the one. That's the one my money is on. Okay. But you know, this you mentioned- This is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> Do not sue me. I have put all my money into Dogecoin. <laughs> I'm, I don't have a lot of money anymore. I just had this moment of panic being like, this is not financial advice. We need to say that now. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned how Western companies just don't get it. It reminds me a little bit about what that Chinese professor just who recorded himself and put it up on TikTok said about how China, how, how China got so successful by simply copying and stealing the West's intellectual property. I think we we have a, a clip of that. We'll we'll put it up, and I will also do the voiceover as it goes because this is a podcast. After a forum and opening up, we let the foreigners in. They brought in their technology, their cars, their money, their experience, their knowledge. China couldn't compete with the foreigners. So what did the Chinese government do? Let people start business partnerships with foreigners and use the partnerships to learn how to do it on our own. For the last 40 years, all we've done is plagiarize. We've copied our way to the top. We plagiarized wildly, copied wildly. What intellectual property rights? What patented technology? We'll get it first and deal with it later. And yet, despite how transparent that is, Elon Musk is still really trying to get into... Get 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 in there. I mean, to be fair, I don't think that Elon Musk is like watching Chinese professors on Douyin. Well, he should be watching China Uncensored or Unscripted. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it's not like he's investing everything in China. He's just, you know, going there to start building some stuff and setting up his, you know, battery factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's just small things. Yeah, it's not intellectual property that he's going to need or that other Chinese electric car makers are going to want. Yeah, exactly. Find that. Big pit, shovel the money in, bury it up. That's why Dogecoin is the perfect solution to the U.S. dollar. Dogecoin can't get any lower. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. I actually don't know how Dogecoin is doing right now. It could be doing fine for all I know. Uh, I mean, yeah, I actually don't know either. We could look it up, but that's probably not what we want to Well, I mean, crypto is up in general, but there's... So this many is not cryptos. going to be a crypto podcast. We're, like, no, we're going to stop not. talking about this now. I, I know how to veer us away from this this trap. 
So uh, we've been talking about how China is trying to use, trying to trying to manipulate currency to kind of solidify its position of power. Uh, but going back to the original topic of how the West and China has this rift now, uh, this is why China is so afraid of having what's happening to the Uyghurs be labeled a genocide. Because as soon as that happens, you can't you can't treat the Chinese Communist Party as if it's a legitimate government. So they're fighting hard against any attempts to label what's happening to the Uyghurs genocide. What I don't understand is how can the State Department human rights report say there is genocide happening in China and then that's not enough for the U.S. government to be like, what's happening in Xinjiang is a genocide. Oh, like you you want to hear like Biden say it. Well, no, but I mean, like, it's like if the State Department officially writes that in a report, like, then it's the U.S. government, including the current administration, acknowledging that that there is genocide. I mean, right? I don't, who reads a State Department report? Us. We read it. And then we, <laughs> we put it on screen in a China Uncensored episode. And now we're talking about it again on China well, Unscripted. This is yeah, three our, our podcast yeah. is really, you Se know. Shelley, several people listen to this podcast. Well, Matt, I, it's important to uh, present the counter argument. So uh, for the argument that China is not committing genocide, we turn to uh, CGTN. Take it away. Well, Michelle, frankly speaking, not much, because I left no stone unturned, but still couldn't find any trace of genocide. So I think what United States said in its human rights report saying that China has a genocide here was a total smear to China. And the reason why they said such is probably they actually did that in their own history. And based on their own historical experiences with some imagination and association, they think once economic development would have to be had at cost, at a cost of someone else or even sacrifice. Well, we still remember that in their history, they had inhumane treatment to black people under slavery system, as well as they killed numerous indigenous in, 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 in Indian, uh, Indiana indigenous people back then. So that's a massacre in the United States history, but that's definitely not what is happening in China. I am also joined by a Uyghur gentleman whose name is Mai Mai Ti Zunong. Please come here. And he's going to tell us his experience in Xinjiang, especially in Kashi, where he is from. Zunong先生,你好,我想问问看你啊,就是您在这个地方,你自己的这个宗教信仰和文化有没有得到尊重? Uh, so he said all his regular religious activities and his regular praise are undergoing regularly and being respected. So Michelle, you can see, you know, with us is a very prosperous Arikan Square, and it's, this is exactly what is happening in Kashgar. There's definitely no genocide, so to speak. So Michelle, back to you. So what do you think of that, Michelle? Are you calling me Michelle? <laughs> I'm not not calling you Michelle. Okay. I, I liked how she was like, oh, there, so there is no genocide, so to speak. Uh, back to you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this clip actually shows the two main like propaganda narratives that the the CCP is going with in terms of the, the fighting back against genocide thing. Mm -hmm. One is that all of these foreign countries and uh, you know foreign companies they're they're maliciously lying and spreading rumors that's not true uh, you know there's no Anger genocide in China. yes there's no genocide in Xinjiang uh, and then the second thing is that you know America had slavery and also killed a bunch of like American Indians Native Americans that's that's the basically the two prongs mm -hmm. of this attack one is uh, that there's no genocide and two, America is bad, which which is clever propaganda because, I mean, technically that part is true. America did have slavery. America did treat the Native Americans, you know, kind of awfully, awfully, horribly, uh, and so like by using that, like like that kind of puts you like the the instinct is to go on the defensive of like oh well no it suddenly becomes about us instead of the issue at hand, which is the current genocide of Uyghurs happening. Yeah, I mean, so this is this is like they're going full court press with this particular propaganda offensive right now. Like, 
So they, you know, they cannot have this be uh, something that's accepted. And I think they thought that, like, they could just kind of quietly get away with genociding. You I mean, know, they like, kind of got away with spreading the coronavirus around the world. Or they got they got away with, like, you know, basically doing the same thing to Falun Gong for 20 years. Yeah. Or, you know, like, the, you know, how long was it after the Tiananmen Square massacre before, like, you know, the, the Bush administration was like, it's going to be okay. You know, so it's they've gotten away with it in the past. So I think they thought that they were going to be just able to quietly genocide, you know, in the background. But, hey, everybody go look at the Winter Olympics in 2022 in Beijing. And they were wrong because nobody likes the Winter Olympics. That's true. They just need the Summer Olympics. Again. Yes. Uh, you know, so it's just they thought they were going to be able to get away with it. And then suddenly, wait a minute, actual countries are talking about it. The U.S. is talking about it. The EU is talking about it. They're actually sanctioning us. Uh, this is not okay. So how do they fight back? By punishing foreign companies. Oh, yeah. Well, before we get to that, I just want i just want to bring up just another example. You were telling me about the Huachu Yin thing, because I think that's also a good example. Okay, that's why. All right. So Huachu Yin, the part of this whole, the America had slavery narrative, like the... Quatrain <laughs> Yun, the one of the foreign ministry spokespeople, she actually just literally brought a photo of, you know, black slaves in the US South in the eighteen hundreds, like picking cotton. And, you know, showed that during the her like normal foreign ministry press conference when somebody asked her about the Xinjiang situation. Well, I mean, I think it is very triggering for a lot of people because slavery was so horrible in this country. And recent enough that there are photos of it. Right. Uh, but like the the big difference here is that slavery happened 150 years ago and we can't stop it from having happened. But we also fought an entire civil war over the issue. Right. And then the slavery that's happening inside China now is happening now. So we can stop it. No, 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 Matt. There's no slavery. Because It's only because, you know, like America is lying about there being slavery in Xinjiang because they cannot, they don't understand that you could actually pick cotton without slavery because they use slaves for so many years Tell to Matt pick Tell Matt about cotton. the other picture Hua Chunying pulled. Yeah, it was just a photo of beautiful Xinjiang cotton fields. No slaves. No slaves. Wait a second. So there's a a way to pick cotton without slaves? I mean, you'd laugh at this, but that is actually an argument that they used in like Chinese propaganda, the idea that like, well, they're just lying because they're projecting because they don't, you know. I guess that explains why America had no cotton between 1865 and whenever we started getting it from Xinjiang. <laughs> <laughs> yes, cotton, cotton stopped existing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, no, yeah. it was there just like, what do you do with it without slaves? You can't. <laughs> yes. So uh, this is China is obviously fighting hard against it, and it's sort of the propaganda isn't really working, even though it often has in the past. So as you were bringing up, the Chinese Communist Party turns to what it knows works, uh, putting pressure on Western companies and threatening to cut off their access to the sweet, sweet China market. And uh, that usually is very effective. And it's kind of proving to be somewhat effective as well. There is a major, uh, how would I, how would I say, like manufactured outrage in China right now over H and M, uh, because they put out a statement saying uh, that they, that they, well, actually, they took it down, didn't they? Well, the statement was from last September. Yeah, criticizing uh, the reports of, uh, you know, we've heard these reports that there are. You know, Uyghurs, et ethnic slavery being used to pick cotton in Xinjiang. Basically, they said they were cutting ties with their Chinese, like, supplier, cotton mm -hmm. supplier, because they said they they didn't, you know, want products made with slave labor to be used in their, you know, uh, clothing, which is, you would think, a pretty uncontroversial statement. Yeah, corporations not supporting slavery? I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board. Yeah, so it's just, they... They had made this statement back in September, uh, and it wasn't just H&M. There were other companies that said similar things about, we guarantee there's no, you know, like, we've looked at our supply chains, there's no Xinjiang cotton in our supply chains, et cetera. And then 
like last week or now two weeks ago, uh, mm, when uh, this comes out, when this comes out, the the Chinese Communist Party basically instigated a boycott of not just H and M but like Nike, Adidas, like all of these uh, foreign companies for saying that they weren't going to use Xinjiang cotton anymore because it is made with slave labor or possibly could be made with slave labor. So, like, instead of a human rights issue, they've managed to turn it into a nationalism issue. The West bullying China, which was the same propaganda line they took with the uh, the U.S.-China meeting we were talking about earlier in the episode. Yeah, so literally talking about, I think uh, Jolly Jian talked about how it triggers the... Uh, you know, anger of Chinese people or something that like I saw other Chinese state-run media talking about triggering like outrage. So they're literally like, and it's specifically the Chinese Communist Party started this. It was the Communist Youth League that kind of dredged up this H&M statement from last September and posted it on Weibo with this whole thing about how, 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 like, if you think you can make money in China while you're also spreading rumors and lying about Xinjiang cotton, then, uh, you know, that's wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that's what started this whole thing. It reminds me a lot of the anti-Japanese business riots that happened a few years ago. It was the same kind of thing where there was the dispute over uh, the Senkaku Islands, which Japan owns and China claims belongs to them. And then the, it sparked like this enormous anti-Japanese sentiment in China where like Japanese cars were being destroyed, Japanese restaurants or businesses were being destroyed. And the party kind of egged it along a little bit until it really kind of got out of hand. And, and they're like, okay, it's gone gone far enough now. Go yeah, remember when the ADV China guys were here and they were talking yeah. about how like this happened all the time. And, you know, this week it would not be good to be from the UK, but next week you don't want to be Canadian or whatever. Yeah, well, it's the two minutes of hate. Is that what it was from 1984? Yeah. Two minutes of hate. Well, I think that, like, what's interesting about this is that, you know, people looking at this latest thing about H&M and all of these other foreign companies have pointed out that it's not new. Like, the whole, like, sparking outrage part of it isn't new, but the fact that they're able to do it so well now, mm. like, they know exactly how to trigger this outrage, and they know exactly how to kind of because they also control the entire internet and monitor it they can kind of keep it from getting to the point where like japanese cars are being burned in the streets and they're literally riots because Mm. then you lose control of that so they're kind of like keeping the lid on this so there's still things like you know people cutting up their nike shirts or burning their nike shoes there's been a lot of videos online of people doing that kind of stuff but you know that's not to the level of like people rioting in the streets Yeah. And this is really a critical moment for uh, sort of this ongoing battle between the West and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Often in the past, when China, when the Communist Party put pressure on Western businesses, they usually cave in some way or another. But is this going to be an example of where the Chinese Communist Party's own aggression is so reprehensible that the West is like, okay, no. No I, more. I mean, interestingly, I saw some data that, you know, China sales are only make up like 6% of H&M's like revenue. Yeah. It's it's strange that, you know, well, it kind of goes back to the U.S. sanctions things like the these Western companies, they don't necessarily, they don't really need this like horribly oppressive China market. I think it's the potential it's, that like someday it could be more than yeah. 6%. We can sell scarves to a billion people. Yes. Yeah, without realizing that most of China is desperately poor. And really, it's not a 1.4, 1.5 billion people market. It's a much smaller market that you have to sacrifice your intellectual property for to get there. Right. I mean, China still has maybe, you know, one to 300 million middle class. And that depends how you define middle class. Uh but even even if you take the smaller number, a hundred million, you know, that's maybe comparable to a lot of them are still comparable to like a lower middle class in a in a developed country, and so, you know, going to H and M to buy something is a you know still a, a a big expense for a lot of middle class people in China, so that the real China market is very very small compared to what people imagine it to be. But no, Matt, you got to get in on the ground floor. Yeah, and well, no, but someday, and and, and, yeah. I, and I think there is that idea that because mm-hmm. getting in on the ground floor is valuable. Like, you know, KFC got in on the ground floor in Japan, and now like everyone in Japan eats KFC for Christmas. 
because KFC got in on the ground floor 40 years ago, right? And so like everyone's like, well, we can do that in China today. But uh, the problem is that uh, the CCP kills people for their organs. <laughs> and more importantly, it steals your intellectual property. So you might lose money. Yes. Yeah. yes you well, got to you got to argue in the way that they understand. And I think that's important, too. But yeah. uh, I do think that they may have slightly overreached. I mean, here's the thing that companies would prefer not to have to choose. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. They're, like, they're all soulless, faceless corporations. So like they would prefer to be able to kind of like make money in the West and not get in trouble for using Xinjiang Khan and make money in China. That's why Nike label uh, lobbied against the Uyghur forced labor bill. Yeah. So that's the preference. But now that things like uh, in the like on January 13th of this year, like one of the Trump administration's last China related things that they did was that they actually uh, the Commerce Department and the the uh, Customs and Border Patrol actually outlawed all cotton and tomato products made in Xinjiang that came from Xinjiang. And a lot of these Xinjiang cotton, it goes to other countries like Bangladesh or Pakistan that gets made into garments. So they were like, it doesn't matter what country it comes from. If it's Xinjiang cotton, it's banned from the U.S. So suddenly the fashion industry had to like scramble to change their supply chains. Mm -hmm. And um, this Washington Post article I'd read about it was talking about how like if you had asked fashion companies even last year, they would be like, oh, well, it's going to be so impossible to it's going to be impossible to get Xinjiang cotton out of our supply chains. Mm -hmm. It would take years to, you know, but the U.S. kind of banning that suddenly, you know, it lights a little fire. Like, yeah. Oh, it's not as impossible. As yeah, it, Wait, it wasn't so what that you're saying is We can still all. buy cotton clothes today, even though the supply chains have shifted. Well, I think that sweet. like this is a it only happened. The ban only happened in January. So you're going to have you're going to it's going to be a. So by the end of the year, we'll all have to go shirtless. <laughs> I mean, it you takes go through time. shirts pretty quick, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it, it takes time to shift supply chains, but like they're motivated now to yeah. do it. Right. So uh, that's the thing. Sometimes the companies need a little push. And yeah. now they're in the point now they've been pushed by the U.S. to be like, OK, well, I guess we can't use Xinjiang cotton. And now the CCP is trying to to pressure them from the other side where mm -hmm. they're like, okay, well, you have to use Xinjiang cotton or you don't get the China market. Which definitely is not used, made by slave labor. Definitely right. not. Right. No slaves here. You know. In this particular square where I'm standing. Yeah. There is no war in Boston, say. So this is, <laughs> this is the thing that like, okay, now the CCP through their overreach is going to make companies choose. Companies would prefer not to have to. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they hadn't done this, they would have kind of like laid low for a while. And then, you know, also suppliers, Chinese suppliers, they can lie to their clients. Like a lot of people don't really know what their supply chains are in China. Nor do they want to look. Yeah. So like they're happy to be told that there's no slave labor in their supply chains and they're just going to believe it. And like, mm -hmm. let's sweep it under the rug. But now they've made it a case where now you're going to have to choose and are companies going to choose China? In the past, they have, but now. And that's that's what I hope we're getting to, where sort of the Western free democratic world is sort of realizing, and you know, actually, we have a lot of power. We don't have to worry about angering China. Uh, that that we we don't have to play the games of the Communist Party and go along with crimes against humanity. I think that they've, yeah, the Communist Party has become a little arrogant and has uh, maybe overestimated how much power they have currently. Mm -hmm. uh, and this goes back to both the Chinese professor that we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and the whole meeting in Alaska uh, where Yang Jiechi was, you know, reprimanding the, the U.S. side where like this Chinese professor brought it up in part of his speech that like, OK, well, now we've gotten to the point where we own all, everything, right? Like they, the the China, the foreign companies came in, they brought all their expertise and we've taken it all and the factories are ours and the equipment is ours and everything is ours. And so that's how we have the ability to uh, go to the Americans and like tell them to, you know, they don't have the qualifications to speak to us. Yeah. But as Matt was saying, well, actually, both of you were saying earlier, China is not in a place where like the renminbi can replace the U.S. dollar. It's heading that way. We could be in a very dangerous situation where the Chinese Communist Party is the world's sole superpower, which would be devastating. 
but they aren't there yet. Yeah, and if they could control the global financial system, if the RMB was a reserve currency, then yeah, they would have a lot more power, but they may have, uh, yeah, decided to become aggressive too early. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that's a reaction to the own the internal corruption within the Chinese Communist Party. Like capital flight is a huge issue. Like Communist Party officials have no faith in the Communist Party. They're all trying to get their families and their fortunes outside of China, which is another reason why U.S. sanctions are so effective because they they want to get out of China. And they, they need and they need their stuff in the U.S. Yeah, they yeah. need access to international banking systems. And also, a lot of them do have property in the U.S. or whatever. That mm -hmm. if they get sanctioned, then that gets confiscated. Yep. Uh, so yeah, uh, even though the Chinese Communist Party is sort of projecting this air of power, they're actually uh, got clay feet. They're in an incredibly shaky position, and so this is a time when. The Western, you know, saying the Western world is, is not entirely active. The free and democratic world is able to uh, actually stop the rise of authoritarianism before it's too late. Yeah, and I think that, like, actually, when I talked about they're doing this too early, it's because the Western world or has pushed them to yeah. have to do this too early. What we were talking about earlier about the whole, they cannot let the whole idea that China is a, com a country that commits genocide become the thing that sticks. Yeah. So they have to move now, kind of. Yeah. Speaking of how the Communist Party is trying to control the narrative, uh, uh, we're, we're also seeing them still struggling to manage the coronavirus situation. The WHO, the World Health Organization, just finally came out with their report about their investigation into the origin of the coronavirus. And thanks to close collaboration with Communist Party officials, they have no idea where it came from. Probably from an animal, though, not not from a Chinese lab. Yeah, it's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Uh, former CDC director said it very likely came from a Chinese lab, leaked accidentally, but ignore him. He's not part of these, uh, you know, international institutions dedicated to world health. I mean, is he a virology expert who uh, has personal links to the... Uh, Wuhan Virology Lab, where the leak might have taken place? He probably doesn't, so you can't trust him. He obviously right. wouldn't know what the situation is like on the ground, not like our boy Peter Daszak. What I found interesting is the uh, right before the report was released, 60 Minutes did this, like, you know, segment about the, you know, WHO investigation, even though it wasn't really an investigation because they didn't actually get to investigate anything. They basically just went... And like spoke to like Chinese scientists. Investigation with Chinese characteristics. And they, uh, you know, the Chinese scientists answered all their questions. Like Peter Daszak was one of the people interviewed by the 60 Minutes. And 60 Minutes was like, well, how do you know that this didn't come from a lab? And he was basically like, we asked them questions. And, uh, you know, what they said made sense, basically. So then Leslie Stahl was like, so you just are taking their word for it. And then she also interviewed... Um, there's no lab leak right here in the square where I'm standing. Yeah, like uh, back to you, Michelle. Uh, uh, then she also, uh, by the way, CGTN also interviewed Peter Daszak, and he had talked about like all you know all of his experience with the Wuhan Virology Lab in the CGTN report. Oh, it's something that he you know kind of didn't really want to go into in the 60 Minutes report for some reason. Funny that. Yeah, but the, the funny thing is that. Um, I mean, 60 Minutes did actually mention it, but mm. uh, like they also interviewed um, Jamie Metzl, uh, who's one of these people who's been kind of leading the charge at, like, we need an actual independent investigation into whether they, they, there was a lab leak because this WHO investigation doesn't cut it. And they also interviewed Matt Pottinger, who was a former national security advisor who, uh, you know, basically was saying, because the Trump administration kind of came out and said that, hey, this is a possibility. It's a lab leak thing. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be looking at this. So, A yeah. lot of credible people have said that at yeah. this point. And interestingly, you know, 60 Minutes did this whole episode and they talked to Peter Daszak, but like they presented two different like opposing viewpoints that it was probably was, could have been a lab leak and we should look into it. So... That, I feel like the uh, the Chinese Communist Party whole clamp 
down on the WHO report, making sure that it said what they wanted it to say may have backfired a little bit. Oh, I hope. Like, I hope it actually inspires action on the part of the world. Um, I know the White House has said Americans deserve better information than the report gave. Though, I mean, also the Biden administration has decided not to withdraw funding from the WHO, which was something the Trump administration wanted to do. I mean, so. I, well, you know, the, they think that that was always going to happen no matter what the WHO report said, because uh, the Biden administration believes in working with our allies. And, you know, we need to work within international organizations like the WHO. Well, what happens when the, the international organizations are bought off by the CCP? Uh, see, we can't admit that part. I guess. And the funny thing is, it's not even bought off. Like most of the WHO's funding comes from the U.S., from American taxpayers. So to say that the CCP has bought them off. It's not necessarily through money for the WHO. It's more through kind of political influence. I guess that must be it. I mean, the WHO in 2003, 2004, when the SARS. Uh, it's a very and different piece. It, it kind of went in and demanded to see the the hospital that they were hiding and the cases in in Beijing and all this stuff. So, so they did a good job in 2003. They did. And, and then and then the CCP realized, wait, the WHO did their jobs. We can't have this. Well, they basically got the next WHO head to be Margaret Chan, who was, uh, she was from Hong Kong, but she was basically like backed by Beijing. And then that's the start of things like the WHO stopping letting Taiwan become like a observer state and... Taiwan got excluded. Not mentioning, like, having to mention Taiwan in a specific way that makes it, like, a Chinese province, all this kind of stuff. So, like, that was the beginning of, like, the political pressure on the WHO. Mm -hmm. Right. So within 15 years, the WHO had gone from being willing to be tough on China or any country that had an outbreak to being essentially willing to take the word of Chinese scientists slash officials without actually doing any investigation and without pressuring them for an entire year. And giving their kind of official stamp of approval. I mean, maybe they couldn't help the fact that they couldn't get an investigation, but they didn't have to like legitimize it, right? Yeah, but I, th there were lots of things that the WHO could have done, even if they were blocked from being able to go in, which is the WHO could have just said from day one, well, uh, Either China gives us full access or uh, we will discount anything they say and, you know, make the following categorical assumptions about what, what's going on there. And their refusal to, like, publicly call out their lack of access as a serious problem is what kind of was the... I mean, this is a year ago, right? Like, this was the beginning of the sort of dangerous era of the coronavirus spreading. I mean, a year ago, the WHO was praising the, the CCP for their response to the coronavirus. Even though it came out that uh, through leaked internal conversations in the WHO, they were complaining internally about how China was not giving them any information. But like, you know, publicly, they had to be like, you're doing a great job. Jorb. Oh, that great takes jorb. me back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, delaying calling it a pandemic for a, quite a while. Uh, really, a lot of the reason the coronavirus is so bad, and health experts talked about this in the beginning, is that the WHO said, it's not a problem. Don't worry. Don't wear masks. Oh, I mean, the mask thing was... No, anyway. That's a whole other thing. But like the whole thing with the WHO and China now is that with the Chinese Communist Party kind of forcing the WHO report this way, they've kind of mainstreamed the ability to talk about the possibility of a lab leak. You know, half you a year so? ago, I, I think half a year ago, well, you know, 60 Minutes would not have done the story, right? Yeah, I because, remember YouTube saying, like, anyone who even remotely mentions I mean, it might have come from a lab, shut down. Because I think that there was, like, a, a conflation between the idea that it could have been an accidental lab leak with the idea that it was created like in a lab. Like it was a bioweapon yeah. purposefully sent out. And I think that's part of the thing that, like, the CCP promoted as well. Is that like if you conflate these things and make the lab leak thing sound like a conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. then that's that's not going to get mainstream traction. People aren't going to talk about it. And now we've gotten to the point where people are talking about it. 
I mean, an accidental lab leak is just not that hard to believe. It's happened before. Uh, the yeah. SARS virus leaked in Be- in Beijing labs yeah, there was in this, 2007. There was a second thing. outbreak because of it. As I always say, never underestimate the power of human incompetence. Is that an original quote? It's an original quote. <laughs> we, we should add it to our self-help book we're writing. Which, which one? The one about awaken the missile within? Or was the other one? Something seven lies to tell yourself. Oh, or yes. Ten lies to tell yourself. Ten lies to tell yourself every morning. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like Jordan Peterson, but better. Why bother making your bed? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to make your bed. It doesn't matter anyway. You're just going to sleep in it again unless you die in a gutter. <laughs> wow. wow. Dark really quickly. Perfect. That's chapter one. That's chapter one. And then we'll talk about how to cook a lobster. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> oh boy, where do He's we not go watching. from here? Yeah, I don't know. Well, um, since we'll okay, how about this segue? Since we're talking about horribly depressing things, let's talk about Hong Kong. It's my favorite horribly depressing thing. What does that mean? No, I mean I have a soft spot for Hong Kong since you know we spent so many. I have a soft spot too. In fact, that the the shirt I'm wearing now I bought at a Hong Kong tailor, William Chung and Son. It's my favorite. What my favorite is it place. made out of? Yeah, is it made out of Xinjiang cotton? Ho- hopefully, cotton? Xinjiang cotton. <laughs> I, I, I only yeah. wear slave cotton. That's my. But but uh, you know, like I I was like putting it on this morning, and I was like, oh, I miss. Being in Hong Kong and like all the really nice and wonderful people there. And and it's just like, like, I don't know, somehow like that hit home for me more than, you know, the fact that, you know, this past week they convicted seven you know, democracy activists of, you know, sentenced them to long Several prison of terms. them we have interviewed in the past. I know, right? It's like yes. half the people we've interviewed are in jail now. Like it's awful. Uh, or in exile. Yeah. Long hair was one of the people who was convicted oh, this hair. last week. Yeah. Uh yeah, and several people we interviewed during the protest last year. So, you know. Yeah, they they've officially made well, we've talked about what they were they openly said what they were going to do and now they've implemented it. Uh, you know, the kind of patriotic vows people have to be made, which the the what was it, the national security police are the ones who get to decide whether or not somebody runs. Yeah, for they're office. going to be uh, investigating whether people are sufficiently loyal to run in elections. Isn't that nice? A nice little police force investigating people to see if they're loyal and patriotic. And also they're new. It's the national security. Uh huh. It's not just not just the good old Hong Kong police that we all know and love. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think basically the national security police is basically the the way that they've legitimized the presence of like the the Ministry of State Security in Hong Kong, more or less. Right. Like it's yeah. yeah. Because the the original Hong Kong police that continuously tear gassed us were not problematic enough. They no. they had been trained in Xinjiang, Matt. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, but you need you need police who are not just you know meatheads spraying people with tear gas. Now you need people who can uh, you know be more like operatives. Yeah. It's, it's a more subtle job to investigate Look, people's they were political always, affiliations. They were always in Hong Kong. It just they couldn't operate in the open. Oh, so you think this is basically just kind of acknowledging a force that was already at work in Hong Kong? I mean, I don't think it was as big. Like now they're going to actually have national security police Mm -hmm. as like a legitimized thing. But there were definitely MSF's operatives in Hong Kong. I remember like Simon Chen, that one Hong Kong guy Mm -hmm. who was working for the UK consulate who got arrested in Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. Like after, tortured. yeah, and then after he was released in Hong Kong, he kept seeing people following him, and you know all this kind of stuff before he eventually fled. Even Kevin Carrico had like someone following him. Oh well, that was from like uh, Wei Wenpo, like one of the like pro CCP newspapers in yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. So, but it's always nice to know that you know at least someone's looking out for you. Wait, was anybody following us in Hong Kong? You know, I, I looked but i i don't have the training to be able to see that and anyway nothing we were doing was really supposed to be under the radar like we were filming it ourselves so what was the point of following us they could just follow us on facebook (laughs) yeah i assume they were fans yes oh that's true yeah Mm -hmm. yeah okay but this is hopefully another good example of the communist party's aggressive overreach that is is sort of waking up the west like i mean genocide labeling china as a country that commits genocide is 
definitely pretty good. But I mean, I think people can still look at Hong Kong and be like, okay, maybe they don't keep their promises. Yeah. Maybe this is an authoritarian regime after all. Well, I think that Hong Kong's always been unique in that uh, they've been able to, they've been much more successful in the in the international kind of stage for like advocating for themselves and like talking about what's happening to them there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think this definitely hits home for a lot of people. Yeah, like it is now really just another Chinese city. Uh, though somebody the other day mentioned good point uh, that oh, it was it was a. Uh, a Patreon, a, a patron from Patreon that I was talking to on a, on a live chat the other day. They made the good point that like the Great Firewall hasn't really come to Hong Kong yet, so it can still get worse. Oh yeah, I think that they're setting the stage for that definitely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, we're we're gonna actually talk uh, more about Hong Kong on our next podcast because we're gonna have That's Hong true. Kong activist Max Mock uh, on the show, and he's living abroad now. Um, so we'll get more into detail on some of that stuff, uh, really mm-hmm. the details of what's happening on the ground and and uh, all the things you, you can no longer do in Hong Kong. I'm sure there's going to be more stuff that we can talk about next week. I, I feel like there's many podcasts worth of stuff. Is something uh, coming out next week? Or are you just uh, assuming based on history? Assuming based on, based on history. All right. Oh, you mean Fun. just all, of everything that's going to happen in the next week, there'll be enough to have new stuff? Well, okay, no, that's April 16th. April 16th, the people who were arrested this last week are going to be sentenced. Have, they've been arrested. Have they already been tried? No, How do no, we no. know they'll be sentenced? They, sorry, the, the, the people who were just charged were oh, sentenced. Okay. Yeah. Like what? Uh, they're like the Jimmy Lai is like 73. Somebody was 82. Martin uh, Lee is 82. Martin Lee. Was he the, the father of democracy mm-hmm. in Hong Kong? He was a barrister. Yeah. There's multiple barristers in that yeah. group. You but know, like these are like mostly people in their like 60s, 70s. Yeah. yeah not that's... not real threats to society. By the way, fun fact uh, for you, Shelley, when we were recording the episode about that, I kept saying uh, barista. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even catch it until we finally recorded it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, barista. That's a, that's a normal thing that all she's Hong a, Kong she's a, she's a well-respected <laughs> barista, <laughs> father of democracy, barista. Well, I mean, AOC was a barista. Uh, I thought she was the bartender. Was she also a barista? Oh, you know what? I'm getting those things mixed up. Okay. So no, she was a bartender. Mm. So barista is like Starbucks. Yes. Hey, I used to sell Mrs. Fields cookies. We all come from somewhere. Were you a cookiesta? They called me a cookie monster. Trademarked. (laughs) I feel like this is the moment where our podcast goes downhill fast. Hey, you want to order some dry pot after this? <laughs> the the trick is having dry pot before we begin the podcast. You were especially sharp the day we had uh, dry pot. Yeah, so maybe maybe that'll that something we should do next time. You'll know if we have had dry pot before a podcast. If Shelly and I are dead and Matt is super on the ball, you'll know dry pot. I think well, we're done. I think we're done. <laughs> well, so what do you think about the growing rift between uh, the West and China? Let me know in the comments below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley John. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.